0: Welcome to Reimagining Schools, a podcast from the Edupreneur Academy. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Ulrich Jewell Christensen, a medical doctor who has created several highly successful businesses focused on how we can help learners more efficiently and effectively retain and recall critical information. Hi, Dr. Christensen. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing?
1: Good, thanks. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: I'm great. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing a little bit about your background. And so I would love to just start there. You have a really unique background in kind of medicine and education. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and kind of what led you to education and entrepreneurship. Just tell us about your history.
1: So I kind of like grew up with education. Both my parents were teachers and uh, that was everything we discussed at home. We didn't discuss medicine. We discussed education and pedagogy and how, how to get people to learn and how to make learning meaningful. But then for a long time, I thought I wanted to become a physician and went to medical school. And then suddenly in medical school, the two worlds uh, converged. And uh, I got a chance to look at uh, why do people actually make mistakes? Like, And a lot of it we thought originally was around what we they call 21st century skills, like collaboration, communication, teamwork, that kind of stuff. And it's also a really important factor, but but it was a Another part, which was the, the iceberg below the surface, which is everything that you've learned up until then, your ability to use your knowledge like, for something that, that is purposeful and not just having passed exams and gotten grades. And that shows its ugly head when, when, um, when something collapses and patients are dying because of human error. And a large part of it was related to education It was related to how do we learn things? How do we learn the right things? And how do we learn things that are really useful? Um, and how do we secure that we have them available when we need them? So when, when, the, when a patient collapses or something really bad happens, you, you need to have learned things a lot better and a lot deeper than, than we originally thought. And at the same time was, this is back in during the CD-ROMs, we thought that a technology like CD-ROMs would change the world. Like, mm-hmm. obviously it didn't. The internet arrived, and obviously the internet in itself didn't, but you're beginning to do things where you might be able to make ed- educational interventions with a really big impact. And that that was how we got started thinking, maybe we could scale this from more than just being like dozens of people to hundreds of people to thousands of people. And then eventually, um, while we worked with McGraw for a long time, we were able to reach like several million students in a meaningful way and demonstrating that they really learned. And that's, that's been like the last 25 years or so in a nutshell, which is like every time we dig deeper, we realize that there is an even bigger need for, for securing meaningful learning and purposeful learning uh, to happen.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting that your parents were both educators. And so that was your upbringing. I was also raised with uh, educators in my family. And so I understand that kind of uh, that focus and just having that heart for how we figure out. I've heard you talk about kind of the mountain of stuff that that students need to understand and know. Um, so you originally kind of thought that through the lens of medical students, correct? And, and kind of what they needed to learn. And and of course, what a, an important field to be able to um, distinguish between the information that's really important. Um, and I'm sure that most of that information that they're learning is critical to their success in their job. And so how did that kind of lead you to where you are now in terms of creating a business around that? And how did you get started with, with creation of a business?
1: So we, we originally were just like young. I was a medical student. We were, it was a computer science student and a civil engineering student. All three of us started high school together. And, and at some point the project we worked for and worked on didn't really need us anymore. They were like, Oh, now we got a lot of EU funding and, now that the big boys play, and we were like, okay, we'll go somewhere else, and we act, let's see if we can scale this and make computer simulators for for emergency medicine, and um, and then we realized, wow, you need money for this. Like you, uh, we didn't need to get paid, but but we needed we needed money to buy, buy flight tickets to go out in the world and show people. So we we basically had to learn how to run a business. We had to find people who were willing to pay something for what we were doing, and after a few years, uh, we realized this is hard. This is actually really hard. And, um, and we tried with the most, like, cutting-edge problems early, which was using simulators in healthcare, which was pretty sexy. We got a lot of, a lot of attention. But at that point, we thought we were probably 10 years ahead of the market, um, particularly if we wanted to try to pull it off on our own. And um, we teamed up with uh, first one large emergency medicine company. And then later... We right after September 11th, we, we got a little bit cold feet on whether we were on the right track here, because we kept month by month having to think about whether we could pay wages. And we we're about 55, 60 people. So it was not like a small company. Mm-hmm. Um, and we decided to say, let's just partner up with somebody, find a safe harbor for the, for the vision for this. And, and that ended up being a, a quite fortunate move. While we were in it, we probably regretted it a little bit. But afterwards, getting four years in the senior leadership of a large international company, um, like right out of med school, I sold this company a month before I graduated um, and, and basically started full-time the day after. Um, and I was de facto full-time in, in Sophos Medical, it was called. But the day after I graduated, I had a full-time job in the on the executive team for this, this um, Norwegian-based but international company. Um, mm-hmm. And um, we we were able to continue to build these things and learn like we learned uh, some very significant lessons around how do you make sure that the product fits what the market is ready for, Mm -hmm. Um, and like the products eventually in some of the markets that it was used had a good almost 20 year run in some of the largest certification programs for advanced uh, life support, basic life support, pediatric life support with American Heart Association. Um, and still today, that company is in great shape. Um, I think they have well over 100 people in Copenhagen and um, wow. still working for Leotel. We've started building some of those learning platforms again now, um, mm-hmm. together with our uh, the, the company who originally acquired us, which is a lesson of a couple of things, I think, for entrepreneurs, which is like make sure you don't burn too many bridges. Like, um, I, I think it's probably one of my greatest accomplishments or our greatest accomplishments that We've been able to win an order 20 years later that they bought our first company to address. Uh, And now now we're doing it despite the fact that the other company is still there, that we've been able to innovate and stay relevant, but at the same time be able to part as friends and and go different ways for a period of time. And then things converge again. So, so I think that um, that this aspect of building a business and, and particularly building partnerships as part of that business was, a lesson learned during those four years before we then realized that we were probably too young to be in such a senior uh, in such a senior layer in a large relatively conservative organization we were like let's just try to cut all the safety net again and go out and say four of us wanted to work together and rented an office we would gotten paid some money for that first company Um, rented an office in the middle of copenhagen and a whiteboard and bought some um some crayons and started drawing and and realized that after a year that we were barking up the wrong tree and had to completely mm. course correct. We meaning going back to what we knew we were really good at. So Yeah.
0: Interesting. Well, sometimes being a little naive about maybe the the challenges that you're getting into or facing is not necessarily a bad thing because it allows you to move forward without the fear of, of really knowing what you're getting into. So it sounds like that was part of it. I, I think I heard you say there that some of the challenges that you face were seeing if the market um, you know, was ready for the product. And that sounds like it continues to be a challenge, um, continuing to stay relevant in the market um, and continuing to find ways to sort of persevere uh, regardless of kind of what happens there. It sounds like you spent a lot of time on something which I'm sure was probably frustrating and then really needed to pivot directions. So how would you say you kind of you know, got through those challenges or can you think of some ways that um, you were able to kind of persevere in, even in the face of those challenges?
1: So I, I think that there are some some like more, which is more the craftsmanship of entrepreneurship, which is that that you, as as late as just a few hours ago, I quoted my old mentor and friend from Leral, which was like, uh, "Don't trust, build it, and they will come." Or uh, <laughs> have we now are we now building a product, looking for a market? Those kind of phrases are uh, that's just important to to constantly keep, uh, keep having that acid check in your head, all right? Like that master test that you that you um, that you constantly recalibrate based upon. But then also making some really bold decisions and killing your darlings. I mean, and and we, I I think that objectively, the simulators we built 20 years ago are probably among the most sophisticated still ever made. 20 years later, and mm-hmm. I still would say that it's 10 years ahead of the market. <laughs> so. So we were not just a little bit off; we were like way, way off in terms of what the in terms of addressing the not just the real needs but the perceived needs. And you need to be able to do both to get from from where we are today to where we need to be many years from now. And and I think that that um, that that aspect of killing your darlings and being able to abandon things that you feel really passionate about, uh, instead of just completely in a stubborn way, completely. Um, uh, persevere and follow something where it might actually be a red herring, Mm. um, at least commercially.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of leads us, I think, a little bit into just sort of, you know, education in general. I mean, you probably have a really interesting perspective having seen that in kind of the systems in multiple countries. Um, But what kind of challenges do you think are facing the educational system in the U.S. right now? And kind of how does that lead into ideas that you have for solutions and what you think, would be helpful for the future?
1: So I think the, the biggest challenge um, or the biggest problem, not the biggest challenge, but the biggest problem is that we are completely not set up to address the number one finding and conclusion we have come to after 25 years of research and development in this, which is people learn very, very differently. And it's not because of some magic thing about auditory visual learners and we hope that there is a, a pill that can fix that or we just give somebody to, something to listen to and then somebody else will read it and then it's all good. No, no matter what we do, no matter how good we get, we still see an order of magnitude difference in the difference, like just between the slower learners and the faster learners, not the slowest and the fastest, but but just even when you just look at the middle 90% of the learners, you still yeah. see a 10X difference. We're not set up for that. We're not set up for the fact that that we, they, when the entire system is based on Carnegie units and seat time and like, what if, what if that seat time doesn't fit the need? What if, what if, like, we can always debate whether you need geography or uh, statistics, but the bigger problem is no matter where we look, we find this thing. It doesn't, and, and the crazy, the, the crazy, crazy part of it is, there is very little that indicates that just because you perform well, learning fast, that has anything to do with long-term aptitude or performance. Like, Mm -hmm. and and for some of the 21st century skills, I will bet right now without having evidence to support it, but just the initial um, data points we have, there might actually be a reverse correlation with some of the 21st century skills that we're looking for. that, Mm -hmm. That therefore the problem as I see it is that it's a system set up to deliver a, a manufacturing of, of certain kinds of human robots rather than a system that is geared towards making the maximum delta for each student. I think the biggest challenge is that this is a system that is dependent and has currently not failed completely at least, has, I think it's failed in some ways, but, it, but we've still been able to have enormous growth and enormous wealth production with the system the last hundred years so why has it not gone worse it has not gone worse because of heroic teachers teachers with a heart that was adding a part to this that was phenomenal but if you are to change an entire entire profession to teach in another way i think that's the biggest challenge to address the problem
0: yeah the mindset of that and do you see this the challenge the problem being the same for all learners, whether they're K through 12 and higher education, or do you distinguish that as different different issues?
1: So if you have a system that can that can that, is, that can work for the middle of the road student. And, and you initially think that maybe there's a factor of two difference between what the lowest common denominator is and what the high or, 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 or the slowest learner and the fastest learner.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: okay. Then then we're hitting a wide part of it if we if we use 45 minutes or a Carnegie unit for something, right? But if it's a 10x, you're losing two very, very big tailings. Now suddenly you're losing the majority of the people we're trying to educate. Right. And then of course, some of them will recover, some of them will find other ways. Their two tu- their parents will pay for tutors, and which leads to the huge inequities we have, right? Like we if when we try to work around this, we generate some of the side effects that we've been observing and discussing for years. Mm-hmm. So so the thing here is that I I, I profoundly believe that we need to we need to figure out these two problems, and we need to do it without jumping to conclusions, saying, laser discs or um, <laughs> uh, CD-ROMs or the internet or digital or adaptive or whatever it is will solve all the problems.
0: Right.
1: It's a matter of saying, how do we find a system, systemic way, a systematic way, where or both actually, where where you where we can have a, a constantly upward spiral and not chasing the, laser, the last or every shiny lure in the water mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, constantly not be getting better, but rather end up as we do in my other profession, which is medicine, where we are actually constantly getting better. We do have common, a common language for what science is and how do we interpret mm-hmm. scientific results? W- why is this drug better than the previous one? Why do we, when can we afford to move to this drug? When is the benefits not big enough except for a certain population? When we are not nowhere near that in education, which means that it, it calls for, and I think that is the way to address the, f- the first two, the biggest problem and the biggest challenges, we need to become methodical about this. We need to use learning science and learning engineering to become uh, methodical around how do we constantly get closer to these goals and establish common yardsticks and ways to, to then have a, a civilized conversation, not an emotional one, Uh, but one that is based on science, one that is based on facts, one that is based on understanding and not just quantitative quantitative science, but also uh, human sciences, because there's tons of psychological research that is being ignored every day Um, because we have an opinion about how things could be.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, it sounds like regardless of whether it's a first grade student or a, an adult learner that 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 challenge and the problems are, are very similar and that the the mindset behind how we've set up the system has a lot to do with uh, the future of kind of how we figure out how to change that for sure so what do you see or how do you see the future of kind of technology changing the role of the teacher because you mentioned you know talked a little bit about you know teachers have kind of been the key you know piece there that has sort of persevered through that so as we keep you know moving towards the future of adaptive learning or AR, VR, how do you see the role of the teacher changing in that?
1: So I think um, there, is, there are so many motions about this subject that in, I honestly believe are completely unjustified. I understand why, but I don't think that they're grounded in facts. And the first, the, if you make a comparison and say, is it, is it more interesting to be a physician today than it was to be a physician hundred years ago? I would say you're probably more satisfying to be a physician, at least in some ways. The work pressure is enormous, but, but, but the problems you're tackling every day, the qualification, the precision of your diagnosis, your ability to save lives and make uh, your patients feel better is in a, complete, in a stratosphere away from where it was 100 years ago. Yeah. With more technology than ever before, but, but we've not made humans superfluous. We're just solving more sophisticated problems. Right. I, I hope that that's the same thing we'll see with teaching, which is that in in the past you you were um, you were solved like let's say that you were correct, marking homework, you were correcting spelling mistakes, all sorts of stuff that will I, I think will go away relatively soon.
0: Hmm.
1: What will not go away is the teacher's role as as uh, as the catalyst for human interaction, as right. the, in the social emotional development. The areas where I think a lot of teachers have their main professional identity, we just need to remind them that it's not living up to Carnegie units and 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 um, delivering the same lecture again and again, which can feel comfortable and safe. Where right. it's more the part where, if you ask teachers what they're most proud of, sometimes we uh, often we hear that's when I made a difference in somebody's life, a difference in yes. somebody's life, right? Yeah. Do more of that and, and less of trivial marking of homework and logistical management and classroom management and some of the things that are more mechanical. Um, So I I think that yes, technology will be able to eliminate this the same way as um, lots of people don't even know what a regular typewriter is. Why would we ever go back to using a regular typewriter? It's a monotonous improvement, meaning no, there are no side effects from using a a computer and a a word processor on your computer compared to a typewriter. A typewriter is clearly not and it has any advantages over your your uh, digital tool, and I think we'll see a lot of these. But we will also right now we'll also see a lot of completely useless inventions that that should that should die relatively soon, and that's why we need to be careful that we don't jump on the laser disc, CD, ROM, AR, VR, whatever the the flavor of the month is, and become methodical about it because I you and I can easily explain. To a five-year-old, why a word processor is better than a typewriter, where it's really hard to correct your mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. That's why in an environment where you can make mistakes and fix them quickly, are and they, they, they would be an advantage over a mechanical one where you need to find your old correction ink, right? Like yeah. no disadvantage, right? And we can explain it to a five-year-old. In education, not so much. We will have people who, who, who jump on the bandwagon of saying, oh, VR must be the future for everything.
0: Probably not. Right. For some things, but not for yeah. the human. I think that you know those are all just tools, obviously. And I think that over the last couple of years with COVID especially, we've really um, emphasized the, the importance of that connection with another human, that that's important to the learning process. That we certainly have learned that just throwing content at any age of student is not the answer to or solution to students learning better Um, being isolated in our places away from other people and and ways to engage with others certainly doesn't help um, the flight. And so we can use those tools to support systems and to support teachers, but we also have to find ways to um, continue that connection, whether it be like this online or in person or in different ways. So yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Kind of shifting back to thinking about you know your early days in your career, um, was there anything that stands out to you as kind of beneficial in terms of getting started? Um, and is there anything that you wish you would have done differently now, knowing what you know now and looking back at your uh, beginnings of your sort of entrepreneurship ways?
1: So one of the things that um, that we did well was first of all we broke all rules. We were, we have been we were best friends who made a business together, and. Um, you're not supposed to work with your best friends, right? Right. <laughs> and, and I think that that um, that a lot of people are afraid on how they will react when there are crises, when when there, there is a chance to actually see if you can get advantage over your best friend and the best friend will get mad at you because you did that. I think if you, if you trust yourself and if you establish a, a, a sense of loyalty and a sense of honesty um, and, and a tradition of that, and, and basically uh, are willing to share. And I, I don't see such a big disadvantage of doing it. I see tons of advantages because like building a business, going through the tumultuous phase that most young companies go through, doing it with your best friends makes it a lot more satisfying and a lot easier to deal with, also because you spend an awful amount of time together. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so I've been, have, I've had this luxury that when we're working together, I'm with my best friends, many of them, several of them since high school, still here. And they're all still here. And, and, wow. I, think that that, <laughs> um, and I think that that's a testament to don't, don't be afraid of that, do it. Like, but, but also be willing to make some personal sacrifices where you could take advantage of a situation or where, where you would be able to play yourself in a stronger position. Um, so I, I think that this part of, of, of working as a team Rather than trying as a founder to say, "I want to have eighty percent of the equity before we go into a very prefixed set of uh, our, our a method for raising capital," um, and accept that you're much stronger as a team. So I I would every every time do this again. Build build a team uh, that I trust, share generously and fairly, and and typically in a in a, a musketeer manner where whether I, I in some cases have been the the more senior the one who could have taken advantage of it we share completely equally um, so the um, I think that's one thing I think the other thing is that that, um, that be really careful about what kind of funding you take in um, mm-hmm. and and we we were about to get on the wrong track a couple of times and we sold some companies underway where we it was really hard to get aligned with the acquirers in terms of in terms of, um, culture and fit. And, and it was not a, it was not a single, it, it was not because there was something wrong with them. I think there was something misaligned that, that, um, uh, for some of it, I, I know how to do it better now. I like, we are getting better at it. Like, um, sure. but, but we were still able to, to still do business with the company, the first company that was acquired, the acquire of our first company. So, so I think it's, it's a complicated. It's a complicated world. This thing about a. How do you get the funding? How do you make sure that you align the the expectations with external funders? We funded most of our most of what we did ourselves because we got a little bit scared after the first round, being like we don't think we didn't think we could work efficiently if we had somebody else pull, pulling the steering wheel all the time. Right. And we have now been really fortunate that when we decided to to get a major investment from the Danish sovereign fund and the European Investment Bank and a few others, particularly high net worth individuals with a passion for education. We, and Lego as the latest one, the, the, um, the Danish, very famous Danish brand. We spent a lot of time making sure that we were aligned culturally and, and in terms of what, what um, ethical and, and business objectives we had. Um, so, and it's really easy when you're, when you're squeezed for cash and, and don't know how to pay wages in a couple of months to to go with people who have a different ambition with the company.
0: Sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think you have a unique perspective. I don't, I often hear that entrepreneurs really struggle with that um, in the beginning, especially as kind of that. It feels such like a lonely place to be because they're often doing it alone and you're you're trying to find mentors and other people that you can be around. So I think your situation was definitely unique in that you had a group of people that you started with. Um, and, and that's great that it worked out well for you guys too. And so that's an interesting perspective. But I think it comes back to the same answer that I hear a lot is that you continue to network and surround yourself with other people who are like minded and that are you know interested in the same things that you are and working towards the same goals that you are, and you just happen to have a group of you that were. Ready to go with that, so that worked out well for you guys. Um, What advice would you give to other educators that might be interested in sort of education and entrepreneurship and getting started?
1: I think the first one is to to do it as a team, Um, like that. That is really important. I think the second the second one is the product market fit. The the make sure that you are solving a problem that is real, because. Mm The vast majority of edtech companies that I have looked at in the past, the best exit scenario for them is the next fool's theory, like basically finding somebody who will pay more money for it than they really should be, mm-hmm. because before they find out that this may not be as good of a story as it sounds like on the surface of it, um, and you don't want to be in that category if you're a, if you're an educational entrepreneur, right? You you. Right. you because that's a risky thing, Like, because a lot of them actually never get that exit and they never make any impact. So, so I would say, start the other way around and say, how do, I, how do I build something that I'm sure builds enough value and that I can execute getting to scale at building value? Don't worry so much about how, how you get a lot of customers early, or, um, but make sure that you solve the real underlying problem. So similar, like the analogy in medicine would be, make sure you have the effective ingredient right. Yes. Then there is a second phase of execution, which is to, to uh, execute it at scale and get it out there. But worry less about how you live up to some parameters that investors are often, in my opinion, over focused on, which is, oh, have you found a way for early customer acquisitions like, well, why why don't you why don't you scrutinize more whether the effective ingredient is the right ingredient? Um, or whether you can whether you can begin to execute this at scale and then let's figure out customer acquisition cost. And and I think that that some of these things, and for some companies, they have to play the other game. But but if you're an educator who genuinely wants to to try to build something that has an impact on education, a a method and a mantra that we've lived by is that we build real products for real clients who pay real money for real results. So we don't get ahead of ourselves and say, now we have to give it away for free, and then we'll have to figure out how we make money on the, uh, on the, on the way. But I actually say, if people won't pay for it, m- maybe the, p- the product market fit is not right. Maybe, maybe we, we have not solved the right problem. Maybe the effective right. ingredient is not there. So, yeah. um, and on the other hand, a stage far away from the modern educational alchemy of like, there are many promises of the education world's equivalent, equivalence of like weight loss pills or Eat a pill, and you can, Smoking cessation is, is is it will be possible? Like these miracles don't happen. It's as hard as weight loss, as smoking cessation, to change the habits and in, in education. So, sure. Yeah. I would say take it seriously and be patient. Yeah, that
0: makes sense. I mean, those are obviously band aids and not solutions for the root cause of things. And so it sounds like that you are uh, very interested in, in seeking out really the root cause kind of the, you know, the underlying reasons why why something is a, a problem or an issue and figuring out how to solve that. And, and then the, the rest of those issues can work themselves out after that. That makes a lot of sense. And my original background was in science. And so kind of using the scientific method to solve problems is how I tend to approach things too. And I think that makes sense in business as well. So I appreciate that perspective. Um, would you mind telling us just a little bit more about your company in Area 9 and kind of what they do and then just um how you know our listeners can learn more about your company and look to hear more about that?
1: Sure. So um almost four years ago, we assembled everything we did in education under one company. Um and while we were probably most well known for uh having built Learn Smart and Smart Book from McGraw Hill and in the medical community Knowledge Plus with NEJM, the group behind New England Journal of Medicine. Um, the, um, we, we, uh, we built all the entire infrastructure for for when you produce content, when you ingest content, when you deliver it, when when the platforms are used to tie this together with, with, with educators and even with parents. Um, so so it's it's very broad learning systems, including the infrastructure needed for large-scale publishers or learning companies or school systems. To, to build what, what they put in it. So in some ways you could say that it's, it's like Adobe Creative Cloud for, for media agencies that everything you need to be able to do, if you are one of these stakeholders, we want to be able to build the best in class tools. And we, we uh, humbly believe we're beginning to be there um, that in the different categories that you have the best curation tools, you have the best ingestion tools, the best analytical tools so that, that you can tailor for this very diverse needs. Because we work across what we see as four different, distinctly different segments of education. K-12, we don't do early childhood, but K-12. Mm-hmm. We do uh, higher education. We do um, workforce and corporate education. And then we do um, government and defense. And they they all work remarkably different. And, mm-hmm. and we our platforms are used across all of them. Um, we, we have a special concentration of interest and investments in math education where uh, it's obviously one of the harder knots to crack um where we spend a lot of time understanding that but but we um, we work across everything from from the softest how do you change character and how do you affect 21st century skills education and metacognition which has been one of my big big research areas <laughs> and then all the way to how do we actually learn basic algebra
0: yeah. And that's an area that I, it's really interesting to me as well. So I know that you've done quite a bit of research on metacognition and the kind of unconscious competent versus the conscious competent. And so would you maybe talk a little bit more about the metacognition piece of that? I think that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. So in addition to the vast differences that, um, in terms of speed by people, um, the speed people learn at the, the biggest thing we found is that, um, are the, the biggest inhibitor to speeding up learning and to becoming more efficient as a learner and more targeted is that if you if you're not good at diagnosing what you know and don't know, it really slows you down. Um not just for initial learning, but particularly for learning you need to retain. So so this ability to be able to look at yourself and and do what Anders Ericsson calls deliberate practice. This this skill of deliberate practice could potentially be one of the biggest single factor contributors to improving how how well and how fast and efficient people learn at, it. And it's not just an, a speed game, because the, but it is an important thing to look at because if you run out of time before you've learned what you need to learn, whether it's in one environment or another, there is only 24 hours a day. So this is one of the important problems we need to address figuring out, how do we speed this up? And for us, what we've seen consistently is at addressing the ability to know what you don't know and, and shape that skill to identify quickly and, and accurately what you don't know. And therefore you can focus your efforts there. And that is a that is a game changer.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. And, and I think it does it definitely adds a, a different aspect to sort of shifting our mindset about what we what we realize that we know or what we realize that we don't know around mistakes and just our mindset. And so I think that's a really important piece of learning. Thank you for sharing more about that. Is there anything else that you'd like to just kind of share as kind of a final note with educational innovators about um, your your past or, or what you think is important?
1: So I think one of the biggest uh, trend shifts to to see in the in the foreseeable future is that hopefully we will see a huge challenge on to the to the classic standardized tests and this mm-hmm. single dimensional grading. Very I think. I think that we're going to see a, a landslide towards more competency-based, more mastery-based education because mm-hmm. it's 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 an obvious conclusion on the electroshock that the education world has been through the last couple of years, which is maybe there are other things to this. Maybe this is not just a matter of performing well in the SAT and the, the ACT. This is much more a matter of what can you use it for. And I think that there are, great initiatives out there, the Mastery Transcript Consortium being one of them that I'm closely affiliated with. Um, and I, I think that being able to build school around, let's start with figuring out what we need to use knowledge for, and then target the pathway that students go through, the pathways that they go through uh, towards those goals, rather than saying, here are all the different things you need to know about math. I, I'm of the um, firm opinion that most of these things in math probably needs to, need to stay. And something that eventually you need to get there. But the pathway to, to getting there could be very different from what we are seen today. And your ability yeah. to use it as a consequence of a different path to getting there could be that it would be much more useful. But I do think that we need to reshuffle what we're doing. And right now, it, it, like you, you have a gridlock where there's so little navigation space when you, at the same time as trying to score high on on a standardized test have to try to see if you could re-engineer uh, what school could be so I think yeah. but I, I think that if we ch- if we um if we change that ultimate requirement uh, and that's what the mastery transcript consortium for instance among others are trying to do to say mm-hmm. what what if we instead said that there are other ways to get into your university uh, of choice or your, your dream college that you yeah. can do that after you have uh, have presented your your transcript that shows that you have built, like in college, in high school, you made this Band-Aid that could be attached underwater, And this was, these were all the things you did around it. And by the way, you also did the statistical analysis and how many of them that fell off. Um, okay. so, so I think I, I have, I'm optimistic that we will see this change within the next decade.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too. I think it's a wonderful time to be involved with innovation and education. I think the technology, has really kind of caught up. I mean, obviously we, you know, in terms of testing and high stakes testing, I think we've come a long ways from just the days of just asking multiple choice questions that can easily be graded by a a computer or a Scantron system. And so we're much farther along in the technology process, which is helpful in in terms of being able to do what you're talking about, where computer systems are more able to, um, you know, figure out sort of the, um, you know, more than just the, just one response or an a b c d answer to questions so i think that that really helps us to be able to do that in a different way that um, you know we can measure students in different ways yeah so yeah i appreciate your perspective and I, i really appreciate your time today and thank you so much for coming on the podcast and i'll be sure and put all of your information in the show notes as well but um thank you so much for coming i appreciate you being here
1: thanks for having me
0: yeah thank you